Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I am Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. I'm delighted and honored to have each of you participating in today's teleconference about the recent adjudication trends in the PERM labor certification green card process. I have with me two of our amazing, brilliant, smart, knowledgeable attorneys, Pam Janice, who's a coordinator in the PERM green card department, and Korzad Mehta. Each of them has about a decade each of experience. And honestly, their decade each of experience is nothing compared to their wealth of knowledge, which is centuries old, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, as most of you probably know, labor certification is the first stage of a three-stage process to help your employees obtain permanent residence in the United States through employment sponsorship. PERM is the process by which the employer needs to demonstrate to the U.S. Department of Labor that there were no available or qualified workers and that by hiring the foreign national, the employer is not going to affect the wages and working conditions of U.S. workers, which includes U.S. citizens and permanent residents. So with that broad overview, I'm going to jump and ask Pam to give us an overview of the recruitment that is required, which is where you as an employer gets intricately involved with the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you, Sheila. So this isn't so much a recent adjudication trend or just as much of a ongoing point of concern. When you're talking about the recruitment process for labor certification, the thing to remember is that this is not the same thing as your real world practice of recruiting. It's meant to resemble that as much as possible, but you need to keep in mind that you're doing this specifically for a labor certification purpose, so you need to always <coughs> consider the DOL expectations for this recruitment. Uh, one thing to remember is the required recruitment for this, which just as a little reminder for people, for professional positions is a 30-day job order with the State Workforce Agency, three additional forms of recruitment from a list of 10, which you can talk about with your specific attorney on a specific case, as well as two newspaper advertisements in the newspaper of general circulation in the area of intended employment, and a notice of posting at the actual worksite location. So the thing to remember when you're talking about these recruitments is the Department of Labor, they're expecting you to go into this seeking out potentially qualified applicants. And we've seen DOL denying cases where they did not believe that the type that was selected was the most likely to gather resumes. For example, employer referral programs for extremely small companies or local papers that had no similar technical positions. Now, some of these are reversible denials. Um, some of them are just isolated incidents. And sometimes they were training problems over at the Department of Labor, partly because there's not a lot of guidance about the additional forms of recruitment out there. It's a little bit of a Wild West scenario where 
we're learning about these trends as the Department of Labor is figuring them out. So the best thing to do when you're approaching any labor certification case is to think carefully. Is this form of recruitment really suitable for this position if I'm actively seeking out a potentially qualified applicant? If you're doing that, then anything you pick should reflect your good faith intention. Now, on the other side of the recruitment, which is an ongoing point of concern, is making sure that you have the detailed documentation that is required. And a couple things that have been coming up on a fairly regular basis with the Department of Labor um, would be, one, the employee referral programs. How do you document that your employees were actually informed of this specific position's availability and the incentives available for in referring people for that position? Uh, two, the website postings. This is going both for like professional organizations or job search websites or your own company's website. You want to have multiple printouts with the URL listed on it and the date that it was printed out. Sometimes we see people try to take screenshots from their, from their desktop, in which case not all of that information is, uh, is viewable. So be careful with the documentation of those websites. The other thing would be uh, private employment firms. A lot of times employers have ongoing relationships with private employer firms, and they will use those to seek out potentially qualified applicants. With things to keep in mind is that you're going to want to provide a copy of the contract that you have with that private employment firm and some form of confirmation that they actually did recruit for that position. That can take a lot of forms. It can be potentially a copy of advertisements that they posted or in a letter or email from the contact there confirming how they did it or when they did it and what, if any, responses they received. But the point being, there needs to be some kind of documentation confirming they actually went out and looked for someone. The final thing I wanted to mention in regards to documenting recruitment would be people who are using professional organizations. Um, this is something that's developed over the past six, seven years, mm. uh, that it's okay to use a website for a professional organization or a journal that's published by a professional organization. But something that's come up more recently is making sure that, number one, it really is a professional organization and it's a professional organization that's appropriate for the occupation that's being sponsored. So, for example, um, you know, a professional organization of nurses would not be appropriate for a software engineer job. So it's very important to make sure that, number one, it's a professional organization, and number two, there's some sort of nexus to the occupation that's being sponsored. Thank you, Pam. And I guess it really is interesting because if you're, as an employer, going to go outside of what the Department of Labor says are the normal, standard ways to recruit a person per their understanding of how technically the process should run while being business savvy in the real world, what Pam just referred to as the real world example. So for example, a, software, a professional organization dealing with so hiring software professionals or National Association for Software Professionals may be a fabulous organization. The fact is that when you go out of the norm of the, say, the 
three out of the 10 recruitment methods that the Department of Labor suggests, you are sometimes getting into gray area because the Department of Labor may come back and say, "Uh uh-uh, we're not agreeing in agreement with you. So that's the little bit of the risk that you're facing as opposed to going with the true and tried method of the Sunday ads, the internal processes use as much of the traditional methods as you can. And if you're anyway in your real world using all these other methods, use it, but know that there could be a small risk that could come back to haunt you. I think a really good example that I think I've seen, for example, of the difference between using a job search website that is likely to um, obtain employees for that position and something that's not would be, for example, you have a professional position for like a software engineer that I just mentioned. Do you post the job search website on A, Dice.com or Monster or Indeed, something like that, or B, Craigslist or the Penny Saver? You're going to want to go for the one that is reasonable for that occupation, that you would normally see professional positions posted, specifically technical positions. So for something like a software engineer, no, you should not be posting on Craigslist. You should be posting on a website that is likely to obtain potentially qualified applicants like Monster or Dice or Jobvertise or one of the hundred other appropriate professional um, position type job search websites. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you, Pam. Okay, Korzad, if we can come to you with the time processing and how whether the government uh, closure last to this past year in 2013 had any um, impact on the processing timeframes and when should employers really get started? Well, Sheila, uh, as it stands right now, perms are taking about eight months, plus or minus a day or two, to be adjudicated after filing. Only a day or two? <laughs> uh, the the eight-month processing time that we're seeing is post-filing. That means that it's after all of the recruitment steps, as Pam just described, have been completed. Which itself could be? Anywhere between... 60 to 90 days, Mm -hmm. uh, 60 being the bare minimum. Mm -hmm. So already from when you start a case to when you're going to get an answer, at least under current processing times, you're looking at 10 months, two months minimum or close to a year. Mm -hmm. Uh, Processing times are important, not only because we want our decisions in a reliable and uh, timely manner from the government, but also for many professionals and uh, employers employing those professionals, uh, the H-1B visas time limits can come into play. Now, I think that all of our listeners may, may or may not know, the H-1B visa, which is the most common specialty occupation visa utilized by individuals in professional occupations, is limited to six years per foreign national. It can be extended beyond the sixth year if a green card process, a PERM or an I-140, has been started slash filed for that foreign national. The kicker is that that process has to have been started before certain time periods. And when you say started, you meant actually, actually filed, filed with the Department of actually Labor. Actually filed mm-hmm. with the Department of Labor or the USCIS. We're talking mm-hmm. about the Department of Labor here. We're talking about PERM. Mm-hmm. Um, in order for an individual to be able to uh, extend beyond the sixth year in one-year increments, uh, the PERM must have been filed at least one year prior to the end of that sixth mm-hmm. year. And uh, if that time fr- if that date is not able to be uh, met, then 
an individual can still extend beyond the sixth year if they have an approved I-140 in a backlog category before uh, before the expiration of their sixth year in H-1B classification. Uh, if you can't get to the I-140, obviously, until the perm is certified. So if the perm itself is taking anywhere between 8 to 10 months closer to a year to be certified, mm-hmm. then the prospect that an individual, that employee, may lose their or may miss out on um, being able to extend their H-1B in the United mm-hmm. States and may have to interrupt their employment before they can resume H-1B status becomes quite possible. So mm-hmm. Uh, the prudential course of action is to commence the PERM process as soon as practicable, ideally um, in a position so that you can file it before the individual starts their uh, sixth and final year in H-1B classification. So that even if a PERM is delayed or um, or uh, is, uh, is subject to audit or something like that, you still filed it before the end of that fifth year, before the beginning of that sixth year of H-1B classification, and you can extend in one-year increments until a right. final Right, so even if the I-140 is approved, but the priority dates are current because you mentioned something about the I-140 right. approval and the priority dates not being current, which gives you access to the three-year yeah. extensions. Uh, if the uh, I-140 is approved and the priority dates current, you'll still be eligible for the one-year H-1 extension. As so long as the perm is filed before one year before the end of the sixth year. If the I-140 is approved... And it's in a current category. And it's in a current category, you still need the 365-day rule. That is correct. It can't be based on the I-140 approval and the perm not and the priority date not being... Th- that is correct. Okay. Okay, so let's jump to the next issue, which is this whole big brouhaha that we're hearing recently about possible denials and Balka appeals on... All these years, every person who applied saying a minimum required was engineering degree because everybody has engineering uh, employees who have an engineering degree, maybe in mechanical or chemical engineering, but they're working in the software field. What the heck's going on, Pam? What's this and what can an employer do and what's the story? Well, yeah, this was a bit of a, a hurricane in the immigration world over the summer uh, where IT professional positions where the employer was requiring phys- fields of studies like computer science, engineering, any or related, where all of a sudden Department of Labor was coming back and saying, wait a minute, engineering, that could include things like agricultural engineering. You wouldn't use agricultural engineering for a computer software position. And based on that, there was there were um, denials that were happening. There were still also approvals, but there were a bunch of cases that were being denied. And this was, people were in uproar about this. It got a lot of attention, including it, got, it came to the attention of Bill Carlson over at the annual conference, um, the immigration lawyers at annual conference. And since that time, um, it really does seem like it was a glitch. It was an internal tra- training error. There was a lot of great advocacy done by a lot of attorneys, including attorneys at this firm, to try and raise awareness on this issue that, in fact, it is a real-world requirement. And that's the thing to always keep in mind with these labor certifications is is this really your requirement? And it's not just in the context of this engineering degree, which seems to have been resolved. There are a few pending cases that moved forward to the Board of Alien Labor Certification Appeals before um, they could get reopened and approved by Department of Labor, and hopefully those will get taken care of. But the Department of Labor does seem to have gone backwards and back to accepting this uh, engineering any for 
in IT professionals because it is, in fact, a real-world requirement. It makes sense, and a lot of employers do use that. And it wasn't just engineering. Um, this also was happening for positions that were listing business as a field of study um, for occupations like, you know, business systems analyst, operations analyst, where they're, they're a quasi-technical, quasi-business position, and, and that's one of the potential fields of study. And that was another one that was being targeted. And again, they seem to have rolled back on that. So it comes back to what are your actual real-world requirements is this normal for the occupation? Can you document that? And if for some reason it's not normal for the occupation, can you document your business necessity reason for that requirement? That's, that holds true not just for the um, field of study for the education, but the level of education, a bachelor's degree or a master's degree, and also the experience requirements that you have for the position. Okay. Well, at least that's great news. It's fantastic that they're acknowledging that this may be a training error on their part, training issue, and that they're willing to revisit and hopefully approve most of these cases because that was like a big panic button when this went off. Okay, the other issue that we that you've probably heard and seen routinely is that there the issue of the alternate requirements which need to be substantially equivalent. And I know it sounds like we're going in circles here and sounds like mumbo jumbo for some of you, but you may be aware that there have been recent BOLCA, BOLCA, as many of you know, is the Board of Alien Labor Certification Appeals, cases, which is the appeals body for the U.S. Department of Labor, the local level and the regional level and the national level, which addresses the issues of primary and alternate requirements which are not substantially equivalent so the way the U.S. Department of Labor looks at it is they look at a BS plus five years of work experience as equating to an MS degree plus three years of experience. So if the candidate has either a BS plus five or an MS plus three, they're considered interchangeable. But what happens in the real world for most of you as employers is your candidate may have, for example, a U.S. master's degree but only one year experience or maybe two years experience before they joined you or before the labor certification was filed. Now, how are you going to show that the EB2 classification, which of course your employee is demanding from you morning, evening, and night, would be okay from the Department of Labor's perspective and not come back with uh, some kind of a denial or an audit? So even though the ideal situation is MS plus three, at least if you can show, for example, an MS plus two, then according to the U.S. Department of Labor, there's, they're at least in the same ballpark of the specific vocational preparation. I don't know if this is confusing, but I don't know if either Bam or Jen Kozad want to jump in. Well, I think the point of this, Sheila, is this is something to talk about with your attorney. You need to try and balance the real-world requirements you have for that position with what Department of Labor's expectations are. And so, you know, it may be that you're willing to accept, you know, one or two years of experience, but this position doesn't require a master's plus three. It's only a master's and two. Can you still go forward with a master's and two and a bachelor's and five. And that's something to talk about with your attorney. It's your real world requirements. Can you still meet what Department of Labor's expectations are? And that's where, you know, you need to talk with your attorney because it's an argument. Um, for example, 
you know, a master's degree and zero years of experience versus a bachelor's degree and five years experience. That's probably going to be a problem because even um, though for USCIS, it's considered an EB2, but it freaks out the Department of Labor because they're totally different job zones, totally different levels of SVP, totally different amounts of SVP. It's a huge difference. Basically, you're trying to tell Department of Labor in that circumstance that four is equivalent to um, SVP seven. seven. Yeah. And, it, and that's hard to argue. Whereas in the example you were given, let's say that the position, you know, the employer's normal requirements are a master's degree in one or a bachelor's degree in five. And they have reasons why they normally accept that, why they find that to be interchangeable. There's an argument you can make to the Department of Labor that they are equivalent because even though they're not exactly identical like the MSN3, BSN5 you were talking about earlier, they are potentially equivalent because they're the same job zone and they're the same level. Not the same amount, but same level. Got so it. there yeah, are arguments. Thank you so much, Pam, for that extra clarification. And also, I know that a lot of times both the employer and the employee will say, but I already have the credentials evaluation, which shows that I have the equivalent of a bachelor's degree in five years based on my years of experience, because even though I had only a three-year BSc from India in mathematics or physics, that the rest of the three years of experience or six years, or in some cases, 16 or 18 years of experience is equal to a bachelor's degree plus the five years of extra experience. But we know that the three years of work experience does not equate to a one year of college degree as far as the green card processing goes. That is legally permissible in the H-1B context. And therefore, you can get a credentials evaluation and you can happily get your candidate maybe with your company or with you or in the United States for four or five years, living very happily, convinced that they are a clean, simple EB-2 case. But Unfortunately, when they're ready to file that case, they realize they're in deep doo-doo trouble. So moving on to hopefully better and warmer things, but not necessarily, we have the issue of trends with respect to special requirements, the issue of Section H14 and Section K of the ETA 9089, which I'm going to have Korzad explain. Sure, Sheila. Well, this H... um, The... um, Many jobs mm-hmm. require a special requirement like a license. Mm-hmm. And uh, previously, uh, at least from 2005 until recently, the U.S. Department of Labor um, would look at the uh, special requirement and then continue adjudicating case as normal. Uh, recently, there have been denials reported where the special requirement, let's just say it's a licensure, uh, is not listed in Section K, which is the foreign national section of the ETA 9089, as to when it was earned. The That section is not really written to include those types of special requirements and when they were gained. Uh, it's uh, That section is kind of a demographic and biographical section. It lists a previous work experience. Uh, but DOL has been denying cases where a licensure is required, but Section K does not reflect when that license was earned. Uh, it appears to be a training issue, and there have been reported reversals. But as we spoke about just a few minutes ago, the perm process is lengthy and the processing times are creeping forward. So prudential course of action, once again, is that if you have a special requirement, you should correspondingly list somewhere in Section K 
either with one of the uh, job um, sections or uh, one of the descriptions for the positions as to when that special requirement was earned or uh, when that licensure was gained for okay. that occupation. Okay. And you, we've also seen that the denials on this basis have ended up being reversed by the Department of Labor and the government error queue, which is good. At least that's good news. Right. When they have been reversed, it appears they've been reversed in the government error queue. So it looks like the DOL is, in most of those cases, f fixing them within a reasonable amount of time. But there are tons of adjudicators, and one has to um, uh, calculate variances. So the best course of action is to uh, is to include it in Section K. Okay, sounds great. Thank you, Korzad. Pam, if we can come back to you. I know audits, it's your favorite topic. I'm, I'm sure for you as employers, it's your favorite topic too. Almost approximately 40% of cases are subject to Department of Labor audits. So what are the issues that tend to be the major issues in the audits? And what is the approximate time frame if one can be even given? Actually, Sheila, I think prevailing wages is my favorite topic, but okay. we're not covering them today. So we'll talk about my second favorite topic. Darn, why are we covering it today? <laughs> um, so with audits, the, they are... They are pretty much a part of our lives every day now for everyone. Department of Labor, they're auditing about 40% of all cases. Um, they do still seem to be on a, a pretty much random basis. And they're asking for pretty much the same things uh, consistently. The language of how they request them changes from time to time. But um, one thing that seems pretty steady now for the past seven, eight months is asking for statements from the employer and the employee regarding the payment of the fees. They're seeking confirmation that the employer has paid for the fees and that the employee has not reimbursed the employer for those fees because they are not permitted to do so. The employer is required by law to pay for the labor certification fees there is one small exception for third-party placements where there is a potential ability to pay those fees um, for the employer, uh, but it is a very limited exception. And I would say if you think that you might fall into this potential situation, uh, talk with your attorney first because it is very limited and there needs to be a great deal of documentation. But the standard rule is the employer must pay for the labor certification portion of the green card fees. Uh, the other thing with the with the audits is keep in mind this is not a fast turnaround. They do seem to be processing them on a first in first out basis according to priority date, um, the date that the labor certification was originally filed, and we're seeing about six seven months for them post audit. So taking into consideration the processing times that uh, Corzad was mentioning about earlier, you're talking about for an audited case about 14 months for your labor certification to get processed. So it's uh, it's are you saying 14 more months? 14 months total for the oh, whole thing mm -hmm. between the you know eight months, it's yeah. eight months up front and six, six months, months on the back end. Uh, it's a it's not a short investment of time, and this is why, like Corzad said, it's so important to get the cases filed early on to protect your H-1B status. Okay. So if you're lucky and you didn't get an audit, but you get a supervised recruitment, then is that good unlucky. news? <laughs> I was going to say, is that good or bad, and why? Can you explain and go over some of the trends? Um, so uh, first, let me just start off by kind of giving everybody an overview of what supervised recruitment mm -hmm. is. Um, Supervised recruitment is exactly what it sounds like, and that is w that uh, in the pre-filing recruitment stage, 
Department of Labor is going to be uh, involved in every step mm-hmm. uh, from nailing down the job description to uh, describing uh, or to mandating what media are utilized for the recruitment steps uh, to actually even receiving and then forwarding resumes over to the employer for consideration uh, for the job opportunity. Previously and up to recently, we considered supervised recruitment to be punitive uh, in reaction to some sort of issue with an employer. But nowadays, I think everyone could safely say that supervised recruitment is doled out on a relatively random basis, uh, unclear if there's any trigger. And it's not really punitive in nature from the DOL's perspective. It's more of an integrity measure that they are um, undergoing or that they're subjecting employers to to make sure that the program is on track, the PERM program. Um, The timeframes for completing the tasks that Department of Labor uh, sets out for you in the supervised recruitment process, like um, the, uh, the job description, the uh, ad schedule, consideration of resumes, and uh, putting out the uh, putting out the recruitment report for uh, for final uh, as a final step are are very very short, and Department of Labor is not is not tremendously flexible with providing uh, extensions of uh, of those uh, of those timeframes. Though they may in uh, in 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 certain cases on a case by case basis uh, <clears throat> extend a deadline that they previously set for a case. Um, one of the things that's developed in supervised recruitment over the last year is that the their mandate to uh, require print advertisements for supervised recruitment has been largely removed. Uh, they pretty much exclusively use um, websites uh, di- and direct employers to place advertisements in websites and not in print forms of recruitment. Additionally, uh, the, for at least one out of their stated steps of, um, of advertising websites, they'll require that employers, as proof, print out not only the first, 15th, and last day that the advertisement ran, but uh, also the eighth day that the advertisement ran. Uh, Employers are required to consider uh, direct applicants to the employer and not just the resumes forwarded to DOL. So if there are certain resumes in response to these advertisements that are sent to the employer, the employer must consider them in addition to the resumes that Department of Labor has sent to the employer that they received directly. Uh, Employers as always, uh, must document the basis for disqualification and explain why uh, an applicant could not be trained in a reasonable period of on-the-job training for the position. DL reports over 70% of supervised recruitment cases are withdrawn, but withdrawal as a t- uh, it should not be taken lightly. Uh, it's actually quite dangerous. Uh, subsequent cases filed by the same employer, uh, by that employer for the same employee, will then be subject to supervised recruitment. So, so you really gain nothing by withdrawing exactly. it. Exactly, that's a little scary. And I know this today's conference, and we're very mindful as always of the time, trying to be between thirty and forty minutes because you're doing the middle of your lunch, and we're very sensitive to that issue. I see we touched upon all of the major trends with PERM, and I know that somebody, especially because Pam kind of triggered it when she said, my favorite thing in this world is prevailing wages, uh, but we didn't really touch upon it, um, and maybe we could have a whole separate session just on prevailing wage and how long it takes, what it takes, how to do it, alternate wages, all of that, but all of you know, you have some idea of it even in the H-1B context, but for the Department of Labor, that is a big part of the PERM process, and it's sort of like the foundation on which the rest of the process goes on. But 
to try to quickly summarize, uh, PERM, of course, is a highly technical process, which you probably already knew, but were confirmed by hearing both Bam and Korzad discuss all of the nitty-gritty details about the recruitment and audits and supervised recruitment and job requirements and the fields of study, et cetera. With, and each of these details can pretty much create a trap for the employer, resulting in a denial for the employee. However, if you as an employer approach the, proce- the entire process with a right perspective, hopefully and with the best attorneys that you can find, i.e. us in the Murthy Law Firm, and really with someone that has the experience and the knowledge to hold your hand and guide you as you're going through this process, then the questions you need to ask yourself is, what are my company's actual minimum requirements for this position? And based on those requirements, can my business pay the prevailing wage for this particular individual? And so you have that whole ability to pay issue at the I-140 stage, but you know, today can you pay for it? Can you pay the prevailing wage as the Department of Labor will determine the prevailing wage? Have I made good faith efforts to recruit for this specific position? And have you gone through dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's as required by the Department of Labor to show the good faith recruitment? Can you fully document that good faith recruitment? Because at the end of the day, if you think you've done everything right, but you have no evidence or documents to prove for it, guess what? This is a legal process. Without that, we're nowhere. We have nothing. And finally, can we say that we have made every effort to contact potentially qualified applicants and investigated to see whether they are in fact able, willing, and qualified to do the job um, that you're recruiting for this foreign national that's in the position temporarily while you recruit the best candidate to get the best job done. And remember, it's not the best, but it's the minimally qualified candidate. So in conclusion, We uh, strongly recommend that you work very carefully. This is a long, time-consuming process, and it can be an expensive process. But what do they say? A stitch in time saves nine. Prevention is always cheaper than a cure, than the cure. That if you work with good lawyers who are smart and knowledgeable, you will save time, you will save money, and you will do it right the first time over. You will keep your employees, and your business will continue to be amazingly successful. On behalf of Pam Janice, Korzad Mehta, and myself, Sheila Murthy, and our entire Murthy Law Firm family, we wish you and yours a happy new year and look forward to continuing to help you with your perm, your green card, and all of your immigration processing. Have a great day.